Hello and welcome to Timeless Truths, a sermon podcast from St. Mark Ministries in Greater Green Bay, Wisconsin. This week we continue our series, Home Life Broken to Blessed. In episode 14, let's join Pastor Ben Workington as we learn about households of grace. So open up your heart, open up your Bible, and let's dig in to these timeless truths. Welcome to part two of this series we're calling Home Life. We're taking a look at our own homes, whatever that might look like, whether it's uh, single, single with roommates, uh, married couples with, with or without kids, retirees, um, and all kinds of homes that God has given us and the vibrancy that we have as a variety, a, a patchwork of homes. We're looking this week at Ruth chapter 2. This whole thing is looking through the lens, uh, home life, we're looking through the lens of Ruth, who is showing us what it takes to move from broken to blessed. What uh, insight she gave us in Ruth chapter 1, and we'll continue in Ruth chapter 2. The U.S. Census Bureau has calculated the average number of people living under one roof, a household, if you will. People who live there full-time and together, that average number across America is 2.6. Your house might have less, it might have more, but unless you've got somebody walking around from their toes and just up to their belly button, you don't have exactly 2.6. But I bet if you looked at your home the way the Bible talks about home, and incorporate all the people that the Bible usually thinks about in a home, that number would not be 2.6. If you talked, thought about that coworker that you just love, you can't get along without, the school friend that comes over regularly and plays video games, your extended family, your oasis group, you start counting the people that you regularly have contact with, that you have influence over, they influence you, the people that are always in your life, you start counting them up, it's not 2.6, you might quickly get to a dozen or maybe even several dozen. And Ruth chapter two helps us see how to make the most of those relationships to move all of them from broken to relationships that are a blessing to everyone involved. You remember last week in Ruth chapter one, this word came up and, uh, and it became a theme. We saw it as a theme throughout the book of Ruth. You remember what that word is? I'm not gonna ask you to say the Hebrew word. It's chesed. Remember our definition of that was steadfast, committed, loyal love. Ruth 1 put that theme on display between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth chapter 2, we see just how far that theme extends. Not just to close friends, we see it actually displayed by Boaz to even his employees. If you've still got Ruth chapter 2 open, your Bible or Bible app, open there. And scan again through especially verses 4 and 5. I want you to notice how Boaz and his employees greet each other. Did you catch it? Boaz greets his employees. He says, uh, it's a blessing. The Lord be with you. And his employees respond, the Lord bless you. Now, I think it wouldn't be strange to say that a greeting like that in modern America at work might seem a little strange. If your boss walked in and said, the Lord be with you. (laughs) 
where am I? Because companies in America, businesses in America are secular things, right? Even companies that make a big deal of their Christian values or the Christian faith of the founder, the CEO, members of the C-suite, companies like Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, they're fundamentally secular organizations. You don't need to be a Christian to work there. You don't need to pass a doctrine test to get promoted. Maybe you own uh, your own business or you're deeply involved in the, in the work and the leadership of the work that you're at. Your place of business probably isn't a Christian organization. It's probably a secular one. So it'd be weird if you walked in and said, the Lord be with you. People might think you're strange. But the question is, was it any more strange for Boaz and his workers in his day? Remember how we talked through the history of Ruth last week. It was a time of moral anarchy, moral relativism in the nation of Israel. God had largely been put aside. This nation that God had literally founded He had named it, he had begun it, it had uh, perpetuated through his promises, and they had shelved God. And so Boaz's greeting was strange even then. The workers, his employees, these harvesters, if they had gotten a different job in a different field with a different farmer, they would not have expected this kind of behavior, but Boaz was so committed to making his field a holy place where the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, the Lord was the center of his work. Maybe it makes you think of your work. I think there's this idea floating around out there that if you really wanna work for God, if you wanna do God's work, you gotta do it at church. hand out coffee or greet people who walk through the door. You gotta volunteer for children's church. Maybe you wanna up your game and you wanna lead at church. You wanna do shut-in visits. Or maybe if you really wanna be holy, then you, then you get a job at church. You work there part-time or full-time. And if you really wanna be, do holy work, you become a pastor. And everything else, being an accountant, working at Sam's Club, delivering mail or changing diapers, well, that's just not quite as holy, is it? But Boaz would have something to say to you. He made it clear that his field was a holy place. It didn't need an altar to become holy. It was holy because he had invited the Lord into that place. Harvest was for chesed. He puts it on display in the ways that he interacts with and cares for his employees. He treats them with dignity and honor. He puts it on display in the way he interacts with young Ruth. And that interaction stands out on the page. They have two conversations at two different times of the day. And the way Boaz talks to her, the way she talks back to him, it's remarkable. Because, let's be honest, Ruth was at a severely disadvantaged position. She was a foreigner. 
She was a beggar. That's why she was trailing behind everybody else and picking up just what was left over. And the only person who would notice if anything was wrong with her, anyone she was connected to, the only one she was connected to, was little old widow Naomi. Which meant that it would have been easy to take advantage of Ruth. It would have been easy to steamroller her and easy to escape any consequences for it. But that wasn't the choice Boaz made. Notice how he speaks to her. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. He protected her because of chesed, because it was the right thing to do. He wanted what was best for her. And there in a nutshell, you have a definition, a working definition of chesed. In chesed, you make the needs of the other person the priority. So in your, at your job, you don't need to put a Bible passage on the wall. You don't need to have an open Bible on the desk to bring chesed into your workplace. If you can do those things, great. I'm not telling you to not do them. Please do them. They're great conversation starters. But even if you can't, you can put your coworkers, your boss, your employees, you can put their needs first. You can so root for and facilitate their thriving for their sake, without any ulterior motives, any selfish motives. And then when you do that, people notice because they are all too familiar with relationships with selfish motivation. They're used to that at their workplace, with their boss, with their company, in their marriage, with their parents. And maybe you're a little bit like that. Somebody starts a conversation with you, a relationship with you, and you're trying to figure out what the angle is. How are they trying to use you? What are, what are the ways that they're trying to take advantage of you? It's so common, in fact, that suspicion of relationships has spilled over for way too many into a suspicion of God. Well, God just wants me for my money. God just wants me for my obedience. God just wants me for my worship. People assume that a relationship with God is like a relationship with anybody else and God is just using us. He's got ulterior motives too. And if you, thought, you have thought like that, you have good reason to. But can I ask if it's possible that you actually have it backwards? Would you ever consider that maybe relationships need to go the other way around? Instead of basing a relationship with God on your experience with relationships with people, maybe you need to base your relationships with people on the pattern that God sets in his relationship with you, that he's the beginning and not the end. What is that pattern? Let me show you just a couple of passages, a couple of brief passages to help you see on what terms God has a relationship with any human being. We'll start in Romans chapter five. Take a look at this passage. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were dead set against us, while you were married to, committed to your own sin, and one definition of sin is demanding that I be able to do it on my own terms and refusing to do it on God's. While you were still in that place, Christ died for you. He gave himself for you. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He didn't wait for you to get sober, to marry a good woman, to advance in your career. He died for you. He gave his life for you while you had nothing to offer him to prove that this was not a quid pro quo. He had your best interests at heart. That's his pattern. Another passage that demonstrates this Ephesians chapter one, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy blame and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He chose you. And why? It tells us right here. Because you are so capable because you had such potential, because you were so beautiful, because your family was so picture perfect. No, no, and no. He chose you out of his pleasure, according to his will. He loves you because he chose to. Makes me think of John and Sarah. A couple were getting ready to celebrate their 40th anniversary just weeks away. And something about that 40th anniversary had been bothering John. Something just rattling around in the back of his mind, nagging at him. He wasn't quite sure how to put into words. But for John, the last couple of years had not gone well. With retirement on the near horizon, his company had suddenly let him go without any warning. No golden parachute, no severance package. His entire division just evaporated overnight. And so he went on the job trail. In the midst of that job hunt, their grandson had gotten really sick. Sarah had gotten really involved. She helped out. She was caring for doctor's runs, caring for the other grandkids. And John was nowhere to be found. He had left Sarah alone to her anxiousness, her fear, her grief, And while he wanted to give her more time, he couldn't see any way around it. He was trying to keep the family afloat, trying to make sure that they were able to uh, make ends meet. He was hunting for a job. But even as he worked diligently, worked tirelessly, they had to sell the house. That home where they had raised their kids, where they had dreams of grandkids running around in the backyard again of climbing the walls, going into the fridge because those kinds of snacks only grandma and grandpa have. And all those dreams washed away. Now they lived in a beige duplex. John felt like a failure. Like he had let Sarah down, he had let the whole family down And so one night as they got ready for bed, he mustered up the courage to ask her the question that he hadn't even been able to ask himself. Sarah, honey, 
Have you ever wanted to leave? Is there any part of you that wanted to walk out the door? She paused and took a deep breath because she knew, she sensed that that question may have been the most important question John had asked her since he popped the question. She weighed her words. John, dear, I have loved you all these years, but not because of what you made, not because of your career, not because of what you provided. I loved you because I chose to love you. And you couldn't change that choice. I've loved you, I've chosen freely, and I have loved you freely. See, Sarah recognized that for 14,600 days or near enough not to make any difference, she had woken up and decided to love her husband. She didn't love him more on his good days or any less on his bad days. She had chosen, and he was powerless to change that choice. It was hers to make. That's chesed. That's the kind of love, the committed, loyal love that your father has for you, the kind of committed love that Boaz showed to Ruth, the same kind of love that she had showed to Naomi. And if you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you know how this story ends. They end up getting married and having kids together. But in Ruth chapter 2, there's no hint of that. Naomi maybe starts suggesting it, but in their interactions, there's no romantic spark. There's no, there's no flirtation. There's just two people committing, committed to putting the other person first. I need somebody like that, don't you? Because as I scan over all those relationships in my home, I can see how I have withdrawn, 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 and eventually, inevitably, overdrawn and bankrupted those relationships as I've tried to make them about me, tried to use them to fill something inside of me. And I have left them, those relationships, a shell of what they could be, what they should be. Who can rescue, who can breathe new life into that? Who can rescue me? Naomi knows who can rescue her family. She uses that term, guardian redeemer. That's a specific title, a specific role within a family or a clan. A guardian redeemer had a really important job in Old Testament Israel and the ancient Near East. If a family member fell on hard times and their inheritance, the gift that God had given them to make sure that their family stayed together and was able to to survive and, and, and provide for themselves, if that family member fell onto hard times and that inheritance was at risk, the guardian redeemer came in to rescue them. If a family member was murdered, it was the guardian redeemer's job to pursue justice, to make sure justice was done. Boaz, as the guardian redeemer of Elimelech's family, would save this family, but we'll talk about how next week. You'll have to 
my way to making sure you come back next week. Your family has a guardian redeemer too. Not necessarily the family you were born into, but the family you were brought into through the waters of baptism. The family that gathers around a dinner table set by Jesus himself, the family that puts the name of Jesus on the back of their shirt. You have a guardian redeemer, someone to rescue you, someone to redeem you. And he, Jesus, didn't pay for your rescue with gold or silver. He paid with his own blood so that you could be redeemed. So all of those relationships, however many, maybe it's only 2.6, maybe it's 10, 20, 50, however many it is, you don't have to make the most out of those relationships. You don't have to make, make it about you because you have everything you already need. The kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer has given it to you. Acceptance, validation, unconditional love, they are all yours. You don't have to pry them out of anybody else. So wherever those relationships happen, in the gym, in the kitchen, in the office, at school, Make those relationships about them, whoever they may be. And be free. Because your Redeemer has saved you already. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Timeless Truths. Whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, we're glad you could join us. For more information or to support the work of St. Mark Ministries, check out our website at stmarkministries.com. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue our series, Home Life, Broken to Blessed. And remember, you matter and you are loved.